Well, welcome back. Welcome back to looking into hell. Yep, that's what we're doing right now. Not necessarily sounding like the most welcoming thing. This is episode two out of three. They are not independent, but think of them as one single unit divided up uh, for your benefit, for the sake of time. Episode one, we have already completed darkness, debauchery, and decadence, triple D. Third episode, the final episode, will be called The Other Side. And right now, we're going to dive back in looking at some of the big objections about hell, and we know there's plenty. So today is called, yeah, yeah, but what about? It's all about objections today. You know, yeah, yeah, maybe that stuff is true, but, but what about these things? Hey, hey, did you think about this? Now, I fully realize that this can be an awkward and undesirable conversation, okay? You're not alone in that. Hell is not a bright, happy spot for any of us to think about. But as we learned last episode, not liking it does not make it untrue. The truth is that it's probably uncomfortable because we have not talked about it, we have not looked into it, we have not studied it more. We are uncomfortable because we feel like we don't have good answers for any of the good questions that we have heard or that, or that we're thinking ourselves. So last episode, we began looking at alternate views about hell. And so we started with the feeling that hell is repulsive. So let's keep it going with number two. Hell is unjust. The punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? Hell's just a little bit too heavy-handed and harsh. It goes on way, way too long. This objection is strong, and it's in there, right? Many Christians have tried to come up with other options that they feel are more compatible with the God of Christianity, and sometimes with the hell that they were taught about. They believe that if God uh, extinguishes everyone from existence after they die, a, a belief that's called annihilationism, or He brings everyone to heaven in the end, universalism, then He would be more loving and He'd be more easy to live with. But behind this proposal is the assumption that God isn't just if He allows hell to exist or if anyone's there. The first problem with this kind of thinking is that when you get outside the Western world that most of us are very familiar with, you learn that some people have the exact opposite feelings about hell and God's judgment. They see evil that people commit, and they wonder how God could be just if there isn't a hell and if there isn't extreme divine judgment. They believe that hell exists because God is a God of justice and not in spite of it. In villages throughout Africa and the Middle East and India and China, innocent men, women, and children are raped and kidnapped and tortured or killed on a daily basis. And when you witness or when you are a victim of horrific crimes like these, Questions of judgment and punishment, they're not just philosophical considerations. 
to have while you drink tea. Miroslav Wolf, he's a Christian theologian who witnessed so much death and destruction in his home country of Croatia. He writes this, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Because we are hardwired to cry out for justice and against injustice. We accept that if a person murders or rapes, they should be held accountable. If someone gets off because of a loophole in the justice system, we cry out, injustice! Something should be done. We pick at large corporations that knock down trees. We throw paint on people who wear animals for clothes. We post videos online calling for the end of the captivity of the whales. Why? Because we have deep yearnings within us that say injustice is wrong and it has to, it must be paid for. Hell is about this very injustice. And the men and women living in a village in Africa where recently one tribe abducted hundreds of young women from another tribe, some as young as 10 years old, and forced them to become sex slaves and suicide bombers? Do you think that the parents of these little girls have a problem with the idea of a place where evil men get punished for their crimes by a just judge? Do you think that they object to a time when God will pronounce final and deserved judgment on these men? I can assure you they're not losing any sleep over it. In fact, any concept of God without the final expression to them is less just. And honestly, if that's the case, He might not be worth worshiping at all. When we suggest that everyone gets into heaven because God is so good, for many people that sounds downright awful. They hear about a God like that and they ask, why would you worship a God who fails to uphold justice by punishing evil? And if we're honest, we know that there is a God. If there is a God, and if He is perfectly good and just, He must judge impartially and fairly, and there must be consequences for the evils people commit. If God is truly just, then there is a hell. Does it make us uncomfortable? Yes, it does, frankly. But it also makes sense. The doctrines of hell and God's love, they're they're not mutually exclusive. They don't contradict each other. Once we understand what love is, they fit together perfectly. Consider this. As we move forward today, this idea is going to come up more than once, okay? So keep this kind of idea in your head. Hell is locked from the inside, and God does not so much send people there, but they choose it through their own actions. But again, it's really important for us to acknowledge that we have cultural blind spots. 
We see things the way we do because of how we grew up. So J.P. Moreland, he says, people today tend to care only for the softer of God's virtues of God's character, like love and tenderness, while they've forgotten the hard virtues of holiness and righteousness and justice. And God is all these things at the same time. Both are true about God, and at the same time, they are true about God. It is absolutely true that God is love, that He is compassionate, He is merciful, and He is long-suffering. This idea changed the world as we know it. 1 John 4, 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That idea never existed before there was Christianity. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, but He's also just and moral, a purely good being whose decisions are not based alone on modern sentimentalism. He is good because He is just. This is what the Bible means when it says that God is righteous, because God is a perfect judge. His justice is measured and perfect, far different from the kind of punishment that we as human beings are able to give, and far different from what we have often experienced in this life. Maybe, just maybe, our cultural moment right here, right now, is not the preeminent decider of what is right and just for the cosmos throughout time. And it takes a little bit of humility to admit that that may be true, but it is necessary for all of us to do if we're ever going to hear ideas for what they are outside of our own echo chambers. Number three, isn't hell overkill? I mean, skeptics often raise the objection that hell is overkill, that if it is intended to represent God's justice, well, it's actually the opposite, right? It's a miscarriage of justice. A person sins for 80 years, for instance, and then they get punished for eternity? I mean, how is that just? Another great question. But like most questions in this context, there are a number of biblical and philosophical answers to it. First, the degree to which a person experiences punishment is not typically based on how long it takes them to commit a crime, but on the seriousness of the crime committed, the weight of its moral offense. So it could take a person six seconds to murder someone, for instance. That, but does it, would we think that the punishment is just if we demanded a six-second punishment? No. I mean, we put that person in jail for the rest of their life, and in some places we even take their life because of their actions. The punishment is based on the weight of the offense committed. Because a human life has value and worth, we demand a punishment that accounts for what has been taken, what has been stolen, something of equal value and worth. Another problem with the way the objection is framed is that we fail to rightly value the moral offense of what the Bible calls sin. 
we tend to minimize our offenses, thinking that they are small, thinking that they're just light, surely not worthy uh, to warrant a lengthy eternal sentence. Come on, it's not that big of a deal. As far as I'm concerned, it wasn't a big deal at all, right? But again, we're not in the best position to make this judgment. We want to be the center of the universe. We like it to be about us, what we think, what we feel, how it's going to impact us. But the Bible helps us to understand that one of the consequences of rebellion against our infinite Creator is that we, as human beings, we get a distorted sense of moral value. We're not as serious about sin as God is. We don't see the impact that it actually has in the universe. We only look at it as it impacts us. Only He rightly understands His own moral value and what it means to steal what belongs to Him and to keep it for ourselves. The Bible says that even though deep inside we understand that we are accountable to our Creator for all that we have, we do not end up honoring Him as God or giving Him the thanks that He deserves. Instead, in Romans 1.21, at the fall, we became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 23, we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. In other words, we fundamentally don't understand what sin is, how it impacts others, how it impacts the world, how it impacts the universe, how it impacts God, how it affects anything. It's, far worse, it's a far worse crime than we realize. So stealing from God is not the same as stealing from another person. Killing God is not the same as taking a human life. This is not a finite being whom we offended one time. God is an infinite being of perfect beauty, a person of infinite value and worth. That means that our sin against Him is infinite, not something small that just can be easily fixed and wiped away, not something subject to my opinion on the matter. It's no big deal, God. Honest, I'm fine here. An offense against God requires a just punishment. So how do you make up for stealing something of infinite value? What cost must be paid? When we run away from God for our 80 years, it is an infinite, eternal offense. Even if we've only done it for a finite time, because the issue is not simply the nature of the sin or the sinner, but the one being sinned against. People also wrongly assume that after living uh, and committing sin throughout their life that they one day would die and go to hell and in so doing, stop sinning. But it's not that simple. And it misunderstands the biblical teaching of this ongoing punishment. Nothing we read in the Bible suggests that people cease from sinful thinking, sinful behavior once in hell. Like it somehow doesn't matter anymore. G.K. Chesterton once said, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Hell is locked from the inside, and God doesn't so much send people there as we choose it with our own actions. The punishment is legitimately eternal because sin doesn't stop when people die. It continues. 
We should not assume that people in this life who do not wish to surrender their lives to Jesus would somehow change their minds in the next life. Hell's not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good people who didn't, who, who, who didn't believe the right stuff for 80 years. D.A. Carson wrote, they're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their Maker, and they want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented, only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who, for all eternity, still want to be the center of the universe. What is God to do? If He says it doesn't matter to Him, then God is no longer a God to be admired. For Him to act any other way in the face of such blatant defiance would be to reduce God Himself. Still, some wonder, maybe you wonder, how God could give the same punishment to the Hitler's of the world as to regular Joe, who never received Christ into his life but lived a decent life otherwise. How is it fair that their end is the same? It's a good question. And the Bible addresses this question multiple times, teaching that the experience of hell and the experience of heaven, for that matter, will not be the same for every person. Jesus indicates that there will be degrees of suffering, degrees of punishment. For instance, you can see this in Matthew chapter 11 when He says, verse 21, "'Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes.'" Verse 22, "'But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment.'" than for you. 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted into the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. 24, but I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus refers to these several cities and presumably the peoples that are in these cities that they will receive less punishment than others. He speaks of servants who sin ignorantly and will, will receive lighter punishment than those who sin with greater knowledge of God and what He expected of a person. You can find a, a reference to that in Luke chapter 12. The chief variable, though, seems to be a knowledge, a, a measure of punishment or reward will be exercised based on what a person has done in his or her life based on what they knew. We can see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done according as recorded in the books. 
So the reason this judgment passage focuses so clearly on the whole context of a person's life and not about what he or she believes about some doctrines is because our life and what we do with it will directly equal the measure of glory or the measure of judgment that we experience for eternity, and it will be distributed perfectly so to each one of us, even those in hell. The Bible teaches that there is not a one-size-fits-all judgment in the end, but a judgment and a blessing that is proportional to individuals' lives and the choices that we make each day, not a single moment in time. Number four, isn't hell a torture chamber? Christian evangelist uh, turned atheist Charles Templeton He once said, I couldn't hold someone's hand to the fire for a moment. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey Him and do what He wants, torture you forever, not allowing you to die, but to continue in that pain for eternity? There is no criminal who would do this. This question, this one right here, this gets at the heart of that repulsion that we have towards the notion of eternal punishment. Let's start by challenging some of the assumptions that are built into this this charge, this, this question, what about? Assumptions that simply, well, they aren't reflected in what the Bible teaches. So often, you've, you hear parts, you've seen parts, you've thought about things. It's, it's not what it was actually written. Many of these assumptions come from outside sources. People, you watch a TV show, you saw a movie, you heard what somebody said, but so many come from stuff like uh, Dante's Inferno. The, the image of God holding bodies over flames and burning them forever. That's an example of how easy it is for us modern readers to misread the Bible without taking into account cultural, historical, and literary backgrounds. For example... When Jesus says there's going to be fire, utter darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, like He does in Matthew 13, like in Matthew 20 and Matthew 25, those are all places where He says this. We have to understand that Jesus is a first century prophet. And He's similar to Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Jesus is intentionally using apocalyptic language and imagery to make a theological point, okay? Fire was a common image for judgment, but it's largely figurative, symbolic language that teaches us something about the nature of hell while not necessarily reflecting the actual literal experience of it. He's explaining the essence of hell without providing video footage In the passages where Jesus uses apocalyptic imagery, He's warning Israel, and then by extension all of humanity, of the implications of rejecting His message. Those reading, those listening to Him would have recognized the apocalyptic genre, a genre that should not be pressed for stark realism, literalism, because it is filled with metaphor pointing to something beyond itself. You might remember that we had some of this genre conversation back in May and June in the series The J-Train. We talked about a number of the different genres that are employed throughout Scripture. You might want to go back, see some of that, hear some of that again. 
Because when you're reading with the wrong genre in mind, it can really disrupt the meaning of what is happening. Vision literature, apocalyptic literature, really needs to be read, seen, and understood with the full richness of multiple layers and not just be flattened down and condensed into a single level of meaning. More is going on. Apocalyptic language uses complex and highly colored metaphors to describe one event here in terms of another. It's like that. What does that mean for some of the pictures that we have been given? Okay, so let's go on a little symbolic slideshow, okay? Consider Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. There's a photo for you. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They, were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's your photo. G.K. Beale points out that the lake of fire into which Satan and his angels are thrown is not literal. Since Satan, along with his angels, are spiritual beings. The fire is a punishment that is not physical, but spiritual in nature. Because you can't burn spirits. And you can't shoot demons with special guns. They are spirits. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. Why? Because physical weapons don't damage spiritual beings. The Bible often uses imagery when speaking of spiritual realities. Pictures, word pictures for us. The writer of the book of Hebrews, here's your next photo, okay? The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that God is a consuming fire. But this does not mean that God is a giant fireball. The writers of Scripture are simply trying to convey something true about God's character. And in this case, fire is a powerful, purifying, and deadly force of nature. And that corresponds with the nature, character, mission of God. Or consider Revelation chapter 19, 15, another snapshot. Coming out of His mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. (coughs) This does not mean that Jesus will have a literal sword attached to His throat, preventing Him from speaking. The sword is a symbol for the Word of God. He will be speaking truth, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Elsewhere, another photo. You see the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. But we should not imagine that one day we're going to stumble across our Savior with four legs, a furry woolen coat, and hooves. All of these images are pointers to something true and something real. They are attempts to invest in a person or a place or an experience, invest it with theological and spiritual meaning and significance real things. At the same time, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the way to solve every hard text is just to say, it's just a symbol, so it has no meaning in real life. This is a really big deal. Many of you have heard for years that these things, they were photographs. The goal is to be faithful and accurate to what the original context demands, which is always a description, however cloaked, of reality 
in the real world. That's what the symbol is there for, not imaginary, symbolic. So in this context, then, hell is almost always spoken of in some kind of apocalyptic, symbolic form. (coughs) They are not photographs. So then that raises some more really good, legitimate questions, and maybe your head's doing this right now. If Jesus isn't really going to be a four-legged woolly lamb, are there really going to be people in actual flames of fire in hell? The answer, once you've immersed yourself in this genre and the relevant text, is that it's not outside the realm of possibility. And what I mean by that is that God can do whatever God wants to do. But, however, given the passages, it is doubtful. (coughs) The references to fire throughout the Bible are almost always as a pointer to the spiritual experiences of living under the judgment of God. Listen to what Tim Keller, he writes, all descriptions and depictions of heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of the disintegration, while darkness tells us of the isolation. Having said that does not at all imply that heaven or hell themselves are metaphors. They are very much realities but all language about them is elusive, metaphorical, and partial. More than, not less than. Some people hear this and they're relieved. You go, oh, whew, because that means they, they think that now we don't have to take uh, hell all that seriously. It's not going to be that bad of a place after all. I was worried for nothing. They say if it's just a symbol, there's no need for me to worry about it then. Thank you, Graham. I'm so much more at ease to continue sinning. But then there's that, it's just another misunderstanding of how the Bible communicates. Most of the pictures that we find in the Bible are pictures of a reality not less, but more real than the picture itself. So imagine this. I'm sure you've seen this. You're walking through the mall, and there's a custodian, and he's outside mopping. And beside him, safety protocol requires that there is a yellow sign there. And on that sign, there is a picture of a man who is mid-slip, you know, falling. And you might look at that and you say, wow, that experience looks harsh. But if you personally are walking along and you hit a patch and you fall and you smack your head, you would likely agree that while the picture looked awful, The experience was far worse. That's how all this works, okay? Yes, the image of fire and utter darkness is a symbol. But symbols are powerful things, pointing us towards a reality deeper than what an image can capture. Some of you have got one of these. My wedding ring is a symbol, but the beauty of living in my marriage relationship. Is it less than the ring? No. No way. It's far greater. Regularly, we take the symbols of communion, but the reality is far greater than a cracker and some juice. The reality behind the symbol is greater than the symbol itself. 
So, while I would argue that I don't know what hell looks like, I would say that it is not necessarily a physical torture chamber. While it's not that, it is a place of emotional, psychological, emotion, uh, relational suffering and anguish. <coughs> That's what the images of darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and a lake of fire are trying to convey. It is an awful, hopeless, and lonely existence. It's a place that none of us want to go, and none of us want even our worst enemies to go. But there is a time beyond death for the damned, a time that is the opposite of pleasure, the opposite of joy. It is the opposite of grace. It is the opposite of love. And this is a reality. It's a reality that the Bible does not take lightly. It serves as a stark warning to all of us to take seriously the consequences of rejecting God. Do not take lightly walking away from, discarding your faith or ignoring God. But just like way back at the beginning of this episode, we talked about cultures where the suffering in every day is so much greater than the suffering that we see on a regular basis. We can acknowledge that people's sense of desperation is different. There are places where people live under the terror of grotesque injustice and cruelty, and they live in that place day after day after day. And these look out into the world and they see it as a terribly dark place, devoid of possibility. There have been people who had, be, had seen their country invaded time and time again. There have been, um, they have been living under an oppressive system designed to squeeze heavy taxes from them, designed to micromanage their daily life and interactions, both public and private. And they have, in their ancient past, known promise. They have known favor. They are longing for release. They are longing for a champion. They are longing for someone somehow to lead them forward and back into the freedom, back into the favor that is historical to them. They are longing to experience the world with joy, hope, and love. And it's from these people that we seek to learn what it is to have deep longing, to know what it is to be the weary world that might rejoice. Because we too long, uh, we long also to enjoy that thrill of hope. We earnestly desire to meet the one in whose name all oppression shall cease. We dream of the day where we can fully experience God and sinner reconciled. This one that we long for, born that man no more may die. But it's a challenge. It's really hard to weave that story and our story together. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this experience exploration of the darkness that we may be rescued from will guide us on our way to prepare. It will help us to prepare for our countdown to Christmas, not the holiday, but the holy day, the day of our dear Savior's birth. So together we can encourage each other, we can remind each other, we can listen together. Our eyes can strain out into that darkness and our ears can become more sensitive to listen. Then rang the bells 
more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth He sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And by the end of November, we will be in a good spot for Advent, the anticipation of the coming. We will be in a good place to comprehend our need for a Savior, the gift that we have been given. Not just the need, but the wonder, the beauty of the possibility of God at work on our behalf. God with us. Emmanuel. He, He is our King. Kind Father, I thank You. I thank You for so much that's at work in in places that sometimes I don't want to let my mind stray to, things that I don't want to think of or think about. But You've already been at work. Before we ever knew that we had a need, You had a way. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the hope of salvation. Thank you that as we surrender our lives to you, as we choose to recognize Jesus as our King, as we welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives, we can be saved from this darkness that surrounds and that is foretold. We don't have to be subject to it, but in the midst of the darkness, you can bring joy, you can bring hope, you can bring peace, you can bring love, and the darkness that surrounds cannot make that light go out. Thank you for this gift. And as we wrestle and struggle with these hard things, these not happy things, God, I pray that you would give insight, not so that we might finger wag to other people, but so that we might have assurance ourselves that you would give us a firm place to stand, that our trust in you would be solid, and that we might live in kindness and grace and compassion with those around us to help them who are also struggling but feel the weight of darkness, who feel the weight of dislocation, who are angry at what life has given them and what they have chosen. Lord Jesus, please... Use us to fulfill your mission once again that we would bring unity. We would bring light and love, that we would show a path that is different. We would live in such a way that there is an example for someone else to see that that, that might lead them out of the dark place that they are towards the brilliant light of you. We don't take for granted that we have been privileged. And we thank you for what you have given, but we don't choose to hold it as our right. We hold all things as gifts from you and decide not how much we will give, but how much we will keep for ourselves. So make us generous in the way that we live, in time, in treasure, in talent, for our trust is in you, for the whole future and every part of it. Thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.